There are some really crazy people in the state of Florida. Rick Schneider from Brandonson, Florida is crazy in his own way. He spends four hours a day strolling his city on his daily walk, feeding stray cats. That's pretty crazy in itself, but it's not the craziest thing that Mr. Schneider does. On his daily stroll, Mr. Schneider stops at all of the car washes he sees. Well, it's not because he finds the spin cycle really fascinating, although when you're sitting inside the car, it is kind of cool to see the big brushes and the soap. He's interested in something else when he stops at car washes. He's interested in those vacuums you see outside of car washes. You know what I'm talking about? Now, at a lot of places now, those vacuums are free, but not at every place. At some places, you've got to put change into the vacuums in order to use them. So what Rick Schneider from Brentonson, Florida does is he goes around to all the car washes he sees, and he checks the little change dispenser slot <laughs> to find loose change that people forget. And you think, oh, well, maybe he finds the occasional penny or nickel every now and then. You know, on average, he finds $5.60 whenever he goes to the car wash. And he did this over the course of 10 years. You know how much he made in 10 years from just picking up change people forgot? Over $21,000. It's not a bad investment strategy, right? <laughs> now, when you leave your lights on at home or you accidentally leave the door cracked, what are you going to hear someone say? Oh, you're throwing away money. What, are we trying to heat the outside? And it's ironic that we who are so careful to throw, not to throw away money, literally throw away money all the time. It's estimated that Americans together throw away $62 million worth of loose change every year. Isn't that nuts? Now, this isn't a sermon about finances, no. Rather, it's, it's one about our failure to recognize what's right in front of us as being valuable and throwing it away. We're going to see that in Mark 11, verse 27 through, verse, uh, through chapter 12, verse 12. At the end of Mark 11, the beginning of Mark 12. Would you turn there and look there with me? If you're looking at a Bible provided in the pew rack, you'll find it on page 848. Uh, just... Just so you know, to bring you up to speed, if you're new to Old Oak, this is pretty much what we do every week, either me or somebody else. Uh, we'll do what we call expositional preaching. That's exposing a, a passage of the Bible, sometimes short, sometimes long, to see what it says, how it points to Christ, the center of the scriptures, and how it has bearing on our lives as well. We're going to do that today as we continue marching our way through the book of Mark. We're going to begin in chapter 11. Verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, 
Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is God's word. We said that this sermon is about failing to recognize what's in front of us as being valuable and throwing it away. Now, throwing away money illustrates this to an extent. But when we throw away money, we do fail to recognize that it's valuable. But throwing it away is, is more careless. It's accidental. It doesn't quite do justice to what's going on here in the book of Mark. Because they have something valuable in front of them. And it's not just that they accidentally failed to realize that it was valuable. No, they refused to realize Jesus is who he says he is. The Son of God come to man to rescue man from his sin. So the main point of this passage, I believe, is that we are to recognize who Jesus is. And when you do this, when you truly do this, you'll bow to him and trust. And you'll bow to him and trust in him as the one who was rejected by men but exalted by God. I'll say that one more time. Recognize who Jesus is. And when you do that, you'll bow to him and trust in him as the one who is rejected by man, but exalted by God. The two stages of this passage, reflected in the two paragraphs of this passage, cover really one conversation. So when you read this, you might have noticed how the second stage of this passage kind of reflects on and draws out more of how this conversation starts, this encounter between Jesus and these religious leaders. So both paragraphs really make the same point, but in slightly different ways. So that's why we're going to go through this, not in strict chronological order, but we're going to address the elements that run throughout this entire passage. We're going to do that by asking three big questions. Three big questions. 
they're actually listed in your bulletin. First big question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We can ask this question, we could plop down any place in the Gospel of Mark, and we can ask this question. This is one of the reasons why Mark writes what he writes. He wants to show us who Jesus is. It's no different here in this passage. So getting ourselves up to speed, you look at verse 27, the very beginning of this passage, we get a familiar setting. It's Jesus and the disciples, they're back in the city of Jerusalem, and they're back in the temple at Jerusalem. Now you'll remember, Jesus made a grand entrance into this city, or two days ago from this passage. This is known as the triumphal entry, or Palm Sunday. This is the city that, uh, where he would die. And Palm Sunday inaugurated what was called now as Holy Week. So we have on Sunday, he entered the city. Then the next day, Monday, he cursed the fig tree, cleansed the temple. That's what we saw the last time we were together in Mark. Now here, it's Tuesday. We find him again, back in the temple. And a contingent of Jewish religious leaders approaches Jesus. We see three groups here. See the chief priests. You see the scribes, you see the elders. Now these three groups made up a larger body of what was known as the Sanhedrin. So you might remember, if you know a little bit of history background to the New Testament, that the Roman Empire ruled over the land of Israel. And to do that effectively, to effectively rule over the Jewish people, they appointed what was kind of a buffer organization known as the Sanhedrin that would go between the Roman Empire and the Jewish people as far as religious matters go. So it was kind of an official religious council. A contingent of that comes and approaches Jesus. That's what's going on here in Mark 11. Now, I wonder, do you have people in your life who, if they're approaching you, you kind of automatically get annoyed? <laughs> you automatically know that they need something from you? It's just, it's a well-established pattern that this is why they come and talk to you. It's amazing that this wasn't the case for Jesus when he sees this group approaching him. It's a well-established pattern that whenever guys like this show up in Jesus's life, they are there not to encourage Jesus, say, hey, Jesus, we think you're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. No, they are there in some way to discourage Jesus and to question him. So it's amazing that Mark doesn't record. Jesus saw the group of chief priests, scribes, and elders, and he went, ah. <laughs> No. Every time this group approached Jesus, he engaged them. And this group of ragamuffins wanted to know what gave Jesus the right to do all that he's been doing. On what authority was he doing? what he was doing. Now, if you left after here and you went to Walmart, I don't know if they sell these at Walmart, but if Walmart sells sirens, if you went to Walmart and you bought a siren and you stuck it up on top of your Subaru Forester, which I know there are like 15 of them in the parking lot, <laughs> if you stuck a siren on your Subaru and you went on to 71 and you tried to pull somebody over, and it actually worked. The person complied and they're pulled over to the side of the road and you get out and approach the window. A reasonable question that person would ask you is what gives you the right to just do what you just did? On what authority are you pulling me over right now? 
The same thing is going on for Jesus here. Throughout the entire Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus do audacious things. He's claimed that he can forgive sins. He has dined with tax collectors and prostitutes. He claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. He spoke against the Pharisees' traditions. No one did that. And he just demonstrated his opposition to what was going on in the temple. What gave him the right to do that? It seems like a legitimate question, doesn't it? But remember, it's a well-established pattern that the group that approaches Jesus here had sinister motives against him. We even see that not so far back in chapter 11, verse 18. It says they sought a way to destroy him. So behind their question of what gave Jesus the rights to do what he was doing, behind that question was their attempt to discredit Jesus in front of all the people discredit him. So Jesus was doing all that he was doing, all the controversial stuff that he was doing, he did without credentials and approval from the official religious authorities. So he did this kind of as a rogue, unauthorized religious professional. And so they're like, what's the deal with this? On what authority are you doing this? Now, credentials are useful. Being qualified for a certain task is useful. If you go to see a doctor, you want to know that your doctor has the right credentials. You want to know that she has an MD. You want to know that she has experience in the field that you are getting treated about. You want to know that she has been recognized by people who know what they're doing as being able to be a doctor. Credentials are useful. But there's something else going on here. By asking Jesus this question, they're basically saying, Jesus, you know, we are the religious experts and authorities. I don't know if you know that. We're the guys who give out credentials. We're the guys who approve or disapprove whoever gets to do ministry. I don't ever remember checking your name off the list saying that we approve of what you're doing. They're telling that, that we have authority over you, They're telling that to the Son of God. Just think about that. This just warrants, I think, a brief comment about how churches should look for ministers. Just a brief comment. Even for us, whether we would add another minister on staff or even whether you would replace me one day. If the Lord tarries and allows it, friends, I will not be the last pastor of this church. And who knows, maybe some of the kids in this room will be a part of the pastoral search committee. I don't know. Lord works in strange ways. So if and when that day comes, I don't, you shouldn't discount credentials. You know, degrees, training, experience, a track record in churches, all those things are useful. They're good. But you should prioritize a man's character his integrity, his love for Christ, his love for Christ's people. That's what should matter most before credentials. So what gives Jesus the right to do all that he's been doing without being approved by the official religious leaders? 
Well, Jesus asserts that he gets authority from God, not from people. That he speaks and acts in the place of God, not this group here. Now, how does he argue for this? He argues for it in a really, really strange way. In fact, it sounds kind of like a politician answering a question by not answering it. It's amazing. You watch debates, and they ask a pretty straight-up rational question, and it ends up turning into a stump speech by a politician, not answering it at all. But just you look closer a little bit at what Jesus is saying, and actually, his argument is brilliant. You see, Jesus points to John the Baptist. You see that in verse 30. He points to John the Baptist. You remember, you might remember, John was the one who in turn pointed to Jesus. He said, Jesus is the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who will take away the sins of the world, the one who would usher in God's kingdom. And John baptized Jesus. You might remember what happened when John baptized Jesus. God the Father spoke from heaven, and what did he say? He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now John did all of that, all of his ministry, he did with no credentials, not being recognized by the official religious authorities. And yet, as this group approached Jesus, they knew very well that everyone around them believed that John was legit that he was a valid prophet, despite not having the credentials of being approved by religious authorities. So what's Jesus saying? What's he arguing? Jesus is telling them that, hey, John had no human credentials. Everyone recognized him. So I don't need credentials from you in order to be legitimate. Because like John, my authority comes from God, not from you. So then we go to the second stage of this conversation. Remember, big question, what we're answering, who is Jesus? And we get a slightly different answer in the second stage. So chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. On the whole, it emphasizes who is Jesus. It emphasizes that Jesus is the Son of God. So the parable Jesus tells, it reflects a common practice of the day. There is a widespread system of absentee landowners who employed middlemen, to supervise tenant farmers. So in this story, the owner represents God. The tenants represent the group that approached Jesus, kind of the Jewish religious authorities. And the servants represented the prophets that God had sent to Israel over their history. Now the parable tells the story of how the tenants of the vineyard rejected and got rid of servant after servant that the owner had sent to them. And this is a history well documented in the Old Testament whether it's prophets like Elijah or Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah. We read about it in the book of Nehemiah. God's people had had a history of rejecting the prophets that the Lord had sent to them. And so the way that the people had treated the prophets is the way they treat the son. Notice what Jesus says in verse 6. Chapter 12, verse 6. It says that the owner got to the point when he sent his beloved son. Here's just drawing out the patience and mercy of God. And Jesus here is making another very, very big claim about himself. That he is more than a prophet. He is more than just a regular son of God. He is the only son of God. 
the beloved Son of God. You see, in this story, there are many servants. There is one son. See, the servants are just hirelings. You see, in this story, the son is the heir. See, in the story, the servants are forerunners. The son is the last and final message from God. All these are Jesus' claims about his own identity. Jesus claims equal authority as God the Father being his heir. And he claims a unique position in how God has related and spoken to his people, being the last and ultimate word to them. So who is Jesus? According to this passage, he is the one who has the authority of speaking and acting in the place of God. According to this passage, he is the unique and only begotten son of God, who is the culmination of God's speech to his people. Now, what's the point of knowing who Jesus is from this passage? The point is, if this is who Jesus is, then the religious authorities don't have the right to tell him what to do. He has the right to tell them what to do. And the same works for us. The same works for us. I'm amazed at parents, even those who claim to be Christian, who say that they aren't going to force faith or religion on their kids. Now, don't get me wrong. Parents, you cannot believe for your children. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is I bet those same parents who have that approach toward faith, those same parents probably make their kids brush their teeth. They probably make their kids have good hygiene, make their kids go to bed. They probably make their kids go to school. Why? Because it would be foolish to let your child decide whether or not it's true that it's good for them to do something like brush your teeth. No, brushing your teeth is good. Like You don't get to decide that. That's what it is. And so here, you don't get to decide, we don't get to decide whether or not Jesus is Lord. He is. So it's not for us to decide. It's for us to trust and believe. Friends, if you believe that Jesus is Lord, then why wouldn't you want your kids to believe that? So when dragging your kids or even dragging yourself to church gets old, you remember that you really believe that this is the case, that Jesus is Lord, that people don't make him Lord. He is Lord. That's the point here. Who is Jesus? Has authority from God. He is the Son of God. But this doesn't mean that everyone receives him as such. So we come to our second big question. How did people receive Jesus? How did people receive him? So in this two-stage conversation in Mark 11 and 12, we see that people did not receive him. Rather, they rejected him. So remember that in the first stage of this passage, Jesus answers the Sanhedrin's question about his authority by asking them a question in return about John the Baptist. This was a common tactic used by rabbis of the day. They would answer a question with another question. So even though the religious governing board didn't authorize John's ministry, everyone believed that John the Baptist really was a prophet. 
This shows that he didn't need religious leaders to be sent by God. So this group from the Sanhedrin recognized that they were in a corner. If they approved John, they would have in turn approve of Jesus. But if they denied John the Baptist, they would tick off the people. So in response to Jesus' question, what do they say? Well, it's fourth down in inches, and they decide to punt. They say, we don't know. We don't know. Is that really true? Is it really true that this group of guys did not know whether or not John the Baptist's baptism was from heaven or from man? No, that's not true. They did know. Look at what was behind their answer in verses 31 and 32. Their response was well calculated. They took time to deliberate. They had plenty of information. The problem for them wasn't that they didn't know. The problem for them wasn't that they lacked information. The problem was that they refused to know. Not that they didn't know. They refused to know. They refused to engage Jesus on this topic because it would threaten their personal autonomy and freedom. It's not that they didn't know. They refused to know. They knew what acknowledging it would entail. So we see a similar refusal and reason for their refusal in the second stage of this passage. In Jesus' parable, the tenant's rebellion against the owner of the vineyard, it peaked with killing the owner's son. And again, you can see a little bit of the motivation behind this. Chapter 12, verse 7, says they wanted the inheritance. So it's like the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, or like any sin. We think that if we can rid ourselves of God, then perhaps we can become God ourselves. So again, in chapter 12, verse 12, you know, motivation, why they rejected Jesus. They knew that they were the guilty party of Jesus' parable, but their concern for their own position before the people kept them from acknowledging and believing in Christ and who he really is. So what does this refusal teach us? This group from the Sanhedrin refusing to acknowledge who Jesus is. What does that teach us? It teaches us a lot. I think both for those who do not yet follow Jesus and for those who do follow Jesus. For those who don't follow Jesus, the skeptic's refusal of Jesus teaches you to be careful of thinking that you'll believe when you have more information. Like, all you need is just more information, and then you will believe. Now, as I say that, do not hear me saying that you shouldn't get more information, that you shouldn't investigate, that you shouldn't ask questions. All that's fine. What I am saying is that this passage tells you that it wasn't lack of, of information that kept these guys from believing in Jesus. It wasn't academic reasons. It was personal reasons. So if you're on the fence about Jesus, the guys who refuse to believe in Jesus in this passage also tell you to be careful about having the wrong priorities. Be careful about having the wrong priorities. So we talked about parents and kids just a few minutes ago. This time, wrong priorities can be seen in couples deciding to get married. Just bear with me for one second. Couples deciding to get married. Now, more and more couples delay marriage 
and why? So common reasons, you know, Haley's probably the guy who says these, you know. The institution of marriage is broken. I don't believe in it anymore. You know, the institution of marriage is just a social construct of a patriarchal society. He's particularly snobby. Or maybe he'll say, you know, I don't need a piece of paper to tell you that I love you. Okay? Maybe those are reasons. But you know what I bet is the most common reason why people delay marriage more and more? Because people want to keep their options open. People want a way out. People don't want to lose their independent freedom. So they are unwilling to devote themselves to another person. Therefore, they delay getting married. So if you're on the fence about Jesus, could it be that it's because you refuse to give up your own independent freedom? Could it be because you refuse to give up control of your own life? Because if Jesus is who he says he is, then that means he is Lord and you are not. And we think about holding on to control and our freedom. We think that leads to our best life, that it leads to the inheritance that the Sanhedrin talks about, that Jesus talked about in this parable. But actually holding on to our own freedom and our own control actually leads to despair. And we think that following Jesus leads to despair and is a drag. But actually, it's following Jesus that leads to a better inheritance than we could ever give ourselves. Listen to Jesus' own words from earlier in the book of Mark, from Mark 8. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what is a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Friends, don't think that holding on to control of your life will lead to the better inheritance. No, giving your life to Jesus will. Well, the Sanhedrin's refusal of Jesus teaches those who don't yet follow Jesus to be careful about thinking that all they need is more information. It teaches them to be careful of having the wrong priorities, of prioritizing our personal freedom and control above everything else. Be careful of that. But the refusal of Jesus here by this group that comes to him, it also teaches us who do follow Jesus. It teaches us particularly, I think, about persuasion. I think we could see three lessons about persuasion from this encounter here. That we can see the need to persuade, we can see how to persuade, we can see the limits of persuasion. The need, the methods, the limits. This encounter here teaches us when we approach and encounter those who don't yet follow Jesus, we need to have the goal of persuading, not provoking. Hear that? The goal of persuading, not provoking. There is a difference in that. So a lot of people, many Christians included, get upset about the crazy state of political correctness that we are in as a country. And rightfully so. It is crazy, especially in a place like college campuses, you know, getting upset over the smallest of innocent words. That is crazy. But, 
But in response to that crazy state, many have taken the approach of fighting fire with fire. Instead of doing the brave, hard, and loving work of persuasion, many simply seek to provoke. So on college campuses, again, they will do anything to get a reaction out of people who are easily upset. And they'll do anything to get a reaction, and then they'll act like they're victims when they do get a reaction. Listen, y'all, the gospel is already offensive on its own. So all the more reason why we need to be like Jesus and seek to persuade. Seek to persuade. There's a difference between presenting the truth with a goal to persuade and presenting the truth with a goal to provoke. The one just simply has a heart uh, to prove that you're right. The other has a heart actually for the other person, not just to prove that you're right. So many of you probably know Robbie Zacharias, uh, Christian apologist. Uh, he goes to college campuses. He defends the truth of who Jesus is. And for good of arguments that Ravi presents, I'd encourage you to look up Ravi, have some of his books here. Uh, as good of arguments that he presents, Ravi is adamant that his attitude and his demeanor show his heart for the people he's debating against. And that's just as important, if not more important, than his actual arguments. And we need to remember that. His goal is not just to prove he's right. His goal is to win people over for Christ. should be ours as well. So this scene, this group refusing to believe in Jesus and who Jesus actually is, it teaches us, those who follow Jesus, it teaches us the necessity to persuade. It also teaches us some of how to persuade as well. We do well to learn from Jesus here in asking good questions. Questions that reveal the state of a person's heart. Question that tests some of the assumptions that people hold. That's what Jesus does here. So the, the group of leaders that came to Jesus, they assumed that a ministry not approved by them couldn't be from God. So Jesus just tests that assumption. He says, does that really hold up? And he uses a great argument. No, it doesn't hold up. So other people, for example, will assume that a good God can't send anyone to hell. That's a common assumption. So what we do, we ask questions that test that assumption. Friends, does that really hold up? So do you really believe that no one should go to hell? Do you really believe that? And most people will say, well, no, I mean, you never bring in Hitler to an uh, argument, but this is a case where you can bring Hitler into an argument. <laughs> of course, some people deserve to go to hell. And then, so you get that assumption's proven false, and now you're on a plane of asking, all right, so then what is the standard? What is the standard that God has for who goes to hell and who doesn't? And in fact, in turn, when you, that leads to the law of God. It leads to how Christ it came to save sinners, how he can save anyone. And in turn, it sees everyone excludes people from heaven in some way. But we're saying in a Christian setting, the Christian exclusivism is actually more inclusive. I know this is a little bit of a rabbit trail. But in Christianity, anybody can be saved. And the general thinking, only good people can be saved. There is no hope for bad people. So, test assumptions. So what this passage teaches us. Finally, 
how we learn to persuade, we do well to learn from Jesus when we persuade by getting to and sticking to the heart of a matter. Getting to and sticking to the heart of a matter. Friends, do not get too far into the weeds when you are talking with a non-Christian friend about controversial subjects. Don't get too far into the weeds. You can't do that before you get settled on matters of first priorities. You need to get settled on who Jesus is. Like, if Jesus is not the crucified and risen Lord, all of our conversations are pointless anyway. Get settled and stick to the heart of the matter. Okay, so we learned the necessity of persuasion, the methods of persuasion, at least some of them. I think this passage, too, teaches us who follow Jesus, teaches us the limits of persuasion. Friends, this encounter in Mark 11 and 12 tells us to be careful to think that we can argue someone into becoming a Christian. Be careful of thinking that. Be careful of thinking that if you just have the right argument, if you just say the right words, then presto, faith. That's not the case. I think of the Apostle Paul's ministry. It's detailed in the book of Acts. He experienced this. He experienced the limits of persuasion. If there's anyone who could make a good argument for Jesus, it was a guy who used to kill people who believed in Jesus and now proclaims that he's the son of God. Acts 17 says that it was Paul's custom to reason from the scripture, to build a case that Jesus is the crucified and risen son of God. But even Paul, knew the limits of persuasion. He knew the limits of his words to persuade people to become Christians. We read about one earlier in Acts 26. He's talking to King Agrippa, a man who could decide Paul's fate. Agrippa told Paul in Acts 26, verse 12, he says, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost. But in another case, Paul reasons, persuades a woman named Lydia from Philippi. And she was persuaded. And she became a Christian. And you know what made a difference? You know, this time that Paul just said the right formula, he plug in the right exact words. Is that what was the difference? No. Acts 16, 14 says, The Lord opened up Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. While we need to persuade, While we should grow in how we persuade, we should also realize the limits of persuasion. It's the Lord who gives faith. It's the Lord who gives the increase. And that should be be a resting thought for us. It takes pressure off of us. This doesn't mean that we don't speak at all. This doesn't mean that we aren't careful in how we make a case for Christ and why we believe in him. But at the same time, we need to remember and rest that the Lord is ultimately the one who gives faith. Even here, Jesus presents a compelling case. He uses a brilliant argument. But even this group, even they sensed their guilt, but they didn't believe. And I think a beautiful thing is that people like the group of Sanhedrin, there are some who did believe, who the Lord did call to himself. Somebody like a Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee. He believed in Jesus. So, so far, what's happened? On this Tuesday in the temple in Jerusalem, all the way back in the first century, so far what's happened has been pretty simple. We see who Jesus is. He's the one who has the authority to speak and act on behalf of God as the Son of God. And we've seen people's reaction to him, refusing to believe who he is. Not because they didn't have enough information, just because they straight up refused. 
So our third big question is what happens next? What happens now that we're here? What happens next? A couple weeks ago, I referred to the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis to show how hope shines brightest for people who know they are in the darkest of places. I couldn't help thinking of the story of Joseph again in this passage here. Like the tenants in Jesus' parable, Joseph's brothers conspired against him to kill him. While Joseph's brothers ended up selling him into slavery, they thought it was certain that they would never see their brother again, that they were rid of him forever. So when famine and despair came to Joseph's brothers and all seemed lost, and they were without food and they were desperate, they went down to Egypt in search for food and in search for hope. And they found both. They got food. And they even got land that they needed. And who is it from? It was from Joseph. The one they rejected turned out to be the one God used to save them. Joseph's story is a preview of the greater story of Jesus. The people refused Jesus. We see that on full display right here. But that's not the end of the story, and Jesus knows it. He quotes from Psalm 118. He says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Instead of being the tenants, this time, the religious authorities are the builders in this psalm. They were charged with building the kingdom of God, the people of God. So the psalm refers to a stone that was rejected for for the use in Solomon's temple. It was discarded as unfit for such a great structure. But it actually ended up becoming the foundational stone, the cornerstone. It was vital for the integrity of an entire building. You just think about it, the first stone, the foundational stone that was laid. If it's not perfectly rectangle, if it's not perfectly even, the whole building's going to lean and fall. And so the stone that these expert builders rejected was actually the one that would hold everything together. This is what is true of Jesus. God's people are now built upon his son, the son that was rejected but exalted by God. Listen to Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 21. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Jesus, the foundation. Now just stepping back for a minute, we ask ourselves, where do we fit in this entire story? Where do we fit? Well, friends, each one of us falls into the same camp as this group of chief priests, scribes, and elders who approached Jesus on that Tuesday of Holy Week. Each one of us falls into their same camp. By our very nature, each one of us falls into the camp who reject and refuse Christ. The Bible says so. Isaiah 53 All we like sheep have gone astray, each one of us to his own way. Romans, there are none who seek after God. 
Ephesians 2, again, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Each one of us falls into that camp of those who see something that is valuable and throw it away and insert ourselves in its place. You know, the beautiful part of this story is that God has included our rejection and refusal of Jesus. Wrong that it is, sinful that it is, he has included that as a part of his plan to glorify himself. Because it's through being rejected that Jesus ends up dying in the place of those who rejected him which in turn leads to him rising again and being declared the Son of God in power. The beautiful part of this story is that the same ones who threw away Jesus are the ones who Jesus saves. The cross represents mankind's refusal of Christ. But friends, it's through that refusal that Christ saves mankind. Amazing. The defeat is a victory. This is the amazing wisdom and grace of God through Christ. The new cornerstone's been laid. Jesus is the one who brings us into the presence of God. He is the final sacrifice for our sins. He is the one who lives and dies on our behalf. And we stand on him. So if you have thrown away Jesus in your past... You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to. Jesus says, whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. If you follow Jesus, you stand firm on this foundation. The one who was rejected by men, but exalted by God. So there we have it. Our big three questions shows us the identity of Jesus, the refusal of Jesus from us, and the exaltation of Jesus. That's what happens next. Friends, believe who he really is. Persuade others to the same. And hold on to the one who was rejected, but then exalted for our salvation. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. That's our prayer now. That's our prayer from all eternity. Jesus, thank you for willingly coming here and being rejected, scorned, mocked by the people you came to save. Lord, what what depths of love. You are our only hope, our only foundation. Help us to stand upon you, the rock that is higher in us. We take refuge in you Son of God, slain for us. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.